0: From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans.
1: Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Korean American Perspectives. My name is Abraham Kim, and I'm here with my co-host Jessica Lee. How are you doing, Jessica?
1: Hi, Abe. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.
0: We have another episode of the Korean American Perspectives. Well, we're interviewing John Brower. Uh, John is a not only a CKA member, uh, but he is an active consultant in the political realm. Uh, he's been not only uh, active in a number of political campaigns, but he's also a Korean-American adoptee. And we're very interested in learning about uh, the perspectives of all aspects of our community. And certainly John has uh, a lot of important views on issues related to not only politics, but also adoptee issues that we hope to dive into during this uh, interview.
1: It was a pleasure to meet with John in Los Angeles earlier this year. And, you know, as somebody who is the same age as me, (laughs) we had a fantastic conversation about a wide range of topics. Uh, And, you know, I was able to understand where his interest in political activism and and civic education uh, really came from and, you know, what it was like growing up. Uh, as a six-month-old in McLean, Virginia, and eventually attending uh, Brown University and and going on to do uh, amazing work uh, throughout the country. And so really excited to share this interview with you all. Thanks. My name is Jessica Lee, and this is Korean American Perspectives brought to you by the Council of Korean Americans. I'm here today with John Brower in Los Angeles. John is a CK member, he's been a member since 2018, and he's also a consultant and speaker at Bauer Strategies. I'm here to talk to John about his career path, uh, his views on uh, growing up uh, in McLean, Virginia, which is actually near where I'm from, uh, and his career here in Los Angeles and his views on uh, current issues, uh, including... Uh, those uh, pertaining to Korean adoptees like himself. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Jessica, thank you so much. It's it's always a joy to talk to you. So I'm glad we get a chance to do so in an official capacity.
1: Exactly. So, John, for our listeners, I think it would be really helpful to hear a little bit about how you came to... Uh, Los Angeles, uh, given that you grew up in Virginia. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about yourself and your background.
2: Sure, of course. So I am a, as Jessica mentioned, I'm a proud Korean-American adoptee. I was adopted when I was six months old. I was a, a tiny, tiny baby uh, born in Seoul and around six months when I was six months old my my birth mother at the time gave me up for adoption and through an adoption agency my, my parents found me. Uh, I think they were the person like pointed to a page in the book and said like, Hey, here's your guy. And they, thankfully they were good with it. And so uh, I flew over alone at the time. I think I was with a nurse, but I flew over and arrived in Dulles airport. This like tiny baby had no idea. Apparently I was looking all around like a, like a complete newbie to the entire world. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I grew up in Virginia, uh, in McLean, Virginia, which is a suburb of DC. Uh, and I kind of, it's a long story and I'm sure we'll get into it, but the way I got to Los Angeles is kind of a weird, circuitous path, but basically growing up, I had a lot of different passions like we all do. And for me, a lot of my passions were things like a lot of nerdy stuff. So I was into band, I played the clarinet and love music, still do. I sang a little bit. I did Model UN and debate team because I love I love nerdy stuff and speaking. And one of the things that I, I I also loved was was theater and and acting and I just loved everything from movies to musicals to to watching plays and it was it was so fun to get a chance to participate in it but it's funny even though my parents are both white uh, so they they can't claim any kind of you know strict Asian parents although my mom sometimes loves to say that she's you know stri- like a strict Asian parent in her own way <laughs> but both my mom and my dad said like hey maybe what are we thinking about career-wise? And they weren't pushy, but they said like, hey, let's let's talk about, you know, where we're thinking. And I, I came to the decision with them. I was like, you know what? I do like politics, social change. This sort of fed into a lot of the stuff I did with Model UN, debate. And so I said, you know, I, I love debate and politics and social change and advocacy, but I also love acting. I'm going to focus on, on politics as a career path. And so for, for the last 10 years, I've been working as a, a political campaigner. So I've been doing different kinds of campaign work mostly at the intersection of like technology, digital and campaigning. So working with Democrats and progressives to make sure that all the online aspects, which is kind of a weird term, but it's like your Facebook, your email, your Twitter, your website, your video, all that kind of amorphous things under digital, that's been my path. And so I did that for 10 years and then recently branched out into entertainment as well. And so it's been, it's that's kind of a really short all over the place thing, but that's how I managed to get to LA via the East Coast.
1: Tell us about what it was like growing up in McLean. Were you one of only um, a handful of Asian Americans? I know how diverse uh, McLean can be, Mm -hmm. but also uh, as an adoptee, were you uh, treated any differently or did you feel like you really totally fit in?
2: That's a great question. Growing up, I think, was... I was about to say, growing up is hard for me. I think growing up is pretty tough for everybody. It's a, it's a, it's a, yes. You're learning a lot of new things, you're finding out who you are. For me, I think McLean was, in a lot of ways, wonderful, and I still go back home often. My parents still live in the same house. I love it, but which is pretty obvious, there's a lot of privilege there. It's a very, very wealthy area. McLean is one of the wealthiest, uh, it's in Fairfax County, one of the wealthiest counties in America. And I think one of the things that I missed growing up, and I don't blame anyone, but I I don't think I ever got a sense of the context that you really need, in my opinion, to be like a well-rounded human being, you know? Because you want to grow up and say like, hey, I'm glad that I grew up without hunger, without, in a lot of ways, without want. But I also needed to place that in a greater context. In terms of fitting in, I think, for me, the biggest thing was I think like a lot of folks not just adoptees but I know a lot of adoptees have this experience this is weird but I didn't really feel like I considered myself Asian or realized I was in like a real full way until like pretty late in life like as an adult sort of as a kid I obviously knew I was different because mirrors right but there was something in me and I think for me it was there was a real sense that I think as an adoptee the, the way that the adoption trauma meant for me is that I felt oh, man, I want to fit in with my parents. So actually, for me, it wasn't just about fitting in at school. It was honestly, to, to be a little bit real for a second, but I'm happy to be. But for me, the adoption was like, oh, man, am, am I not enough? You know, what what causes this to happen? And, and even as an adult, I know rationally that's really mean to myself. And of course, adoptive parents, uh, excuse me, birth parents aren't trying to send a message to kids that they're not enough. But there's this unconscious part of me that's still like, mm, John, were you... Were you lacking in some way? And so I think the way that translated was like, oh, make sure you're not different than your parents. And so for me, that meant, how can I be more white? And so there's already the pressure in America to, to sort of be as white as you can, right, fit in. And I think thankfully that that is changing with more and more folks of color leading the way in all industries. But at the time, especially growing up in a predominantly white area, I really felt that pressure. And, and I'll be honest, even as uh, even though it is a diverse area, a lot of the Asian American folks there were still trying to also blend in. So it was this tough, I didn't really have a guide. I think I needed someone to sort of say like, hey, like, I'll be your intro to like Asian America and like what that means and racial identity. But it took me like a lot longer to figure out what that meant, because I know for me, and I'm embarrassed to say this now because it's not something that I would do now. But I was the kid that tried to rebel against his own Asian-ness and say things like I would talk to my white friends and say like, ugh, look at those Asian kids. Why do they sit together at the lunch table? Which is a really mean, really racist thing to say. It comes from a place of of, of fear and anger uh, and not not fit, feeling like I fit in. Uh, but of course, I would never ask that of the white kids who were sitting together at lunch, right? And so it took a lot longer for me to sort of accept, you know, no, I am Korean American. I am, I'm proud of who I am. I, I have a different identity than a lot of folks. And I'll be honest, I think I'd live... as all of us do, but I live in a weird intersection of identities that that feels unique and kind of cut off sometimes. But it's taken a while, but I feel like a lot better now about saying, no, this is who I am. And thankfully I have a great support network of people that say like, "This this is who you should be proud of too.
1: Where did you go for your undergraduate and what was that experience like? So for example, you know, some of the things that seem to drive you and your work today are rooted in social justice, like you said, and progressive ideals. So was it during your college years where you became more politically aware?
2: That's a really great question. I think that my, my really deep interest in social justice and in sort of just justice in general, I think definitely developed a lot during college. So honestly, at Brown, I was really focused on my studies and then honestly, a lot of different kind of pursuits, everything from uh, for a year, I was in an a- acapella group, so I was one of those people with the, you know, like trying to be <laughs> cappella and the vocal percussion and everything. So that was that was really fun at Brown. But I, I also just lots of different activities. I-, I kind of fell into politics, actually, even though I had, again, been really interested in my whole life. I kind of wasn't planning on getting into politics immediately, but around the 2007-2008 years when... Uh, Secretary Clinton and then Senator Obama were in the, the Democratic primary, I just was so captivated by that race and by how it, it felt like so many more people were tuning in, and that was really powerful to me, that not only was this, oh, this is a big news thing, but like it felt like people were really invested in a way that was not true in 2004, in 2000, right? And I'm again, I was still a kid at that point, but I, I still even felt like this is a different kind of election. And so at that point, I felt like, oh, I need to get involved. And so I, I literally just called up some friends. And this is where, again, that privilege comes in. But I had some friends from Brown who had graduated and gone on to work on campaigns. And I said, tell me, like, what? I don't know a lot about campaigns. I just have studied that. Like, what? What is a campaign job? What should I? How do I do it? And one of my friends who was uh, deputy field director, which is the, the sort of knocking on doors, calling. That's the, the field component. Uh, you know, I, I he said, hey come out to Indiana, come out and, and help us. And I said, wait, what? And so over the course of a weekend, I went from not knowing about campaigns at all to maybe I should move from Providence, Rhode Island to like Southeast Indiana, uh, right next to Kentucky uh, for the last month of the election, right? It wasn't even a whole year. It was just sort of that get out the vote GOTV period. But I Were you still I,
1: in school at that
2: point. No, I, I just oh. graduated. I was, okay. I was working for the college, so i was I was making a pretty good salary uh, because profiles encouraged instead of volunteering on campaign, I said, "Let me choose the the salary and benefits job that i can <laughs> I can rely on. but i I went with uh, I decided to move sort of out of nowhere. I had some savings, and I said, no, i, I wanna I want to do this." And and it was really, really hard. I we were, you know, stationed out of a I forget. I think it was like an old Masonic lodge that literally. I like. I wish this were like apocryphal, but there was a a hole in the ceiling, and not only that, but there was a hole in the ceiling. It's like a three floor Masonic lodge. There's a hole in the ceiling and a hole on the second floor at the same spot. So when it rained, it would literally fall all the way to the floor because there were so many holes in it. Uh, I think the electric shed was permanently flooded which seems to me to be problematic or maybe like a mosquito situation but I didn't really ask I was just there for the last month uh, so it was it was really a crash course in, in everything campaigning but it was it was also just wonderful it was a great chance to see you know we lost by a thousand points so it was unfortunately it was not close but it was a great example to me of of talking to voters of of, of what is campaigning actually like on the ground um, and you know I, it was very very hard work but it, it taught me a lot about campaigning, and that was sort of the springboard for all the rest of the jobs that I would do from there. I then went to DC, and then sort of the rest is history.
1: And amid all this campaign work, did you retain your theater and acting identity, or was it much later that you reconnected with that? Part it's of a great
2: question. It's I really didn't. So I, I sort of put theater off for a while and and had done different kinds of more performative things and in a lot of ways uh in politics even i was drawn to a lot of the work that requires the same kind of skills right you know being a surrogate you know which in this case means you know like uh and i know you all know this but I just for the sake of your listeners you know is when you represent a candidate and you're you know they can't be there maybe but you're giving the speech for them all that kind of work the sort of more Performative makes it sound like I'm faking it. I'm not. These are candidates I care about. But sort of the more public-facing, the more communications-based things, I was really drawn to those things. And so I tried to tap into it in my work, but I didn't come back into into acting again until DC is a very vibrant th- theater scene. When I moved to DC, uh, after a, pr- a pretty long hiatus of multiple years, I realized, like, wait, there are auditions for acting jobs all the time here. And DC was actually remarkably... Flexible with the idea of hey, we know you probably have to have a job to sustain yourself So our rehearsals are at 7 p.m. They're not at 2 p.m. When you're at work or something So I was actually I and I still think that DC is one of the most friendly Welcoming theater environments I've ever been in so I would just juggle political work and then sort of Political and non-political theater at, at night And so that was sort of how I got back into acting and entertainment was sort of on the side but doing both things that I love politics and acting
1: so one of the folks that you and I know quite well uh, is a former um, public service intern of CKA named mm-hmm. Peter Huang, And I want to bring Peter to this picture because, you know, the world of campaigning and, and politics is a bit foreign, I would say, to mm-hmm. most of us, particularly in the Korean-American community. There are a lot of things that you have to sacrifice, as you noted. Comfort, <laughs> yeah, yep. finance, personal finance, and being uh, able to relocate at a moment's notice, yep. and not really being able to have a life and settle down, et cetera, et cetera. And so Peter, who was our inaugural public service intern, um, you know, um, he's finishing up at Yale University this year, but he's already started a non uh, pro- nonprofit organization called Campaign for America that seeks to diversify uh, the campaign staff. Um, you know, in part uh, by giving, you know, more diverse candidates opportunities through financial and other mentoring and, and support uh, and, and, you know, really teeing them up for higher profile positions that eventually, uh, you know, become, um, you know, one of the key markers, I would say, of, um, you know, securing great jobs in, in the world of politics. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on Peter and his organization. You know, obviously you, you serve as an advisor, I believe. Um, so how did you hear about Campaign for America, and what has that meant for you?
2: So Campaign for America, I met Peter through CKA, actually. So at a CKA event, one of the amazing Los Angeles events that CKA put together, this was the the one, I believe it was a, a two years ago now, but talking about the LA uprisings. And to me, it was a really powerful introduction to CKA because uh, I'll, I'll be, you know, uh, plain, I, I one thing that I... I I do approach a lot of new organizations, especially uh, Asian American organizations with a little bit of awareness. And and that's not fair, I think. But for me, as someone that cares a lot about equality and justice, I, I have sometimes worried that some Asian American organizations I have worked with in the past um, have not always been as, as thoughtful about some of the issues that were brought up as as we saw during that event that was talking about the LA Uprising. So for me, for that first event to be this like really thoughtful exploration and introduction to a few different, one, CKA members, and then introduction to a lot of different issues that like I still don't quite understand, but I'm, I'm really happy that CKA has a lot of resources focused on um, and different members working on different aspects of it. I thought it was wonderful they were able to put together that kind of event. And so I met Peter, and Peter and I sort of hit it off mo- almost immediately. And I think that a lot of it comes from the fact that, it, it's funny, I, Peter and I talk about this a lot, but we're we're very different in, in our background from a on-paper perspective in terms of, I think Peter's from Texas, you know, there's a lot of, uh, Peter's not adopted, uh, but we see a lot of similarity in how we interact and grew up with the world. Mm. And so, we a lot about us on paper is different, but when it comes to our experiences growing up in not predominantly people of color spaces, when it comes to our... Uh, how we navigate college and then sort of the Ivy League and all the privilege there is there and I think Brown and Yale both have done great things in terms of acknowledging and working with some issues of hey like let's really push the envelope on equality on justice it's also they've also had some real tough times as well Peter uh, sort of initially reached out to me and said like hey let's let's I want to hear some of your thoughts about this and i i tried to be really real with him and say like hey here's some things that come to mind when i think about a training program because i've done a lot of training and i believe very strongly in peter's mission which is this sort of idea of diversifying campaign campaigners because campaigning unfortunately like every industry is very very white very rich very upper class etc it's you see the same kinds of systems of oppression at play in that workplace as in all of our workplaces unfortunately so peter's mission is really really valuable and i think from that initial conversation he realized you know, hey, John's deeply invested in this as much as I am, and so uh, since then I've basically been partnering with him on on CFA, Campaign for America events, and so basically what happens is, you know, a few times a year we put together a cohort of of individuals who don't in any way look or on paper are like the rest of the campaigners in in our current system, but I think that adding them to it is is benefits the entire way that we we run this country. Uh, and so I'm really proud of the work there. And and, and right now, I think the, the main next step is how do we make sure that this great program that is, has done so much great work for now a few cohorts, how do we think about an even bigger thing? How do we make it so that this is baked in? And this is kind of something, this is a mini rant, but I'm fascinated by and I'm obsessed with in a lot of ways the like super unsexy policy, I would say, which to me is like, like yes, I, I do care a lot about the, the issues of the day and they are important. But I think a lot about how, gosh, this is so nerdy, but like, you know what, let's do it. To me, I think a lot about how many people have tough retirement situations because they don't have automatic deductions. Their employer has something that you opt into instead of you opt out of. And so to me, that's like a, a really simple change. And in a lot of ways, some people might say like, oh, well, if you don't want to opt in, why, why would you just, no, it's, it's better to just have it, you choose if you want to do your retirement account or not. But you think about it and you look at the actual outcomes and you see people have like a difference of $500,000 or a million dollars because of a simple like, oh yeah, we're going to opt you in for the minimum, you know, whatever we match 2% of your Roth IRA or whatever. It's it's wild. And to me, what what kills me is that so many of the things that we need to solve are not built in and baked in right that, like that. It's, I, I care about the systems. And so to me, I'm thinking about Hiring to me is so fraught and broken in campaigning, but it's just in general, it's, it's tough to hire. And a lot of the ways we, we think about hiring are so problematic and, and questionable. And so I, I'm obsessed with this idea of like, I know a lot of our solutions, but how do we take that and make it automatic again? How do we make it so that it's just baked into LinkedIn and not just something that people proactively have to do? Anyway, I'm ranting, but that's, that's where I'm at with, uh, with, with CFA and, and how we make things better.
1: Right. I I agree with you on, you know, the fact that organizations like CFA are really critical in, you know, bridging what is, you know, clearly a a pretty big divide uh, Mm -hmm. between those who want a working, you know, campaign or explore that or be, you know, or experiment, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that option, Uh, but just, you know, it's just not something that their parents talk about. It's Mm -hmm. not something that they're even encouraged to pursue because of the risks and, you know, sort of the uncertainty that's baked into political jobs in general. And so to have more Asian Americans and Hispanics and African Americans in there, in these positions that over time become increasingly influential uh, Mm -hmm. as you go up the ladder, I mean, I think is is really important, and that's also a really valuable pipeline uh, for uh, future elected officials as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think on a number of levels, uh, CFA's job, uh, mission is, is very important. I want to now shift gears a little bit and, and hear about, you know, your thoughts on the current uh, debate. Now, I'm mindful of the fact that you don't, you know, pay very, very, very close attention to what's happening in Washington (laughs) on the Adoptee Issue and the Adoptee Citizenship Act, which some of our listeners may be familiar with. uh, But, And we're going to get into this and and sort of look at the numbers and and look at, you know, why uh, this issue uh, gained the attention that it did. Um, You know, and I have the New York Times article in front of me here about Philip Clay, um, you know, in July 2017. Uh, who, you know, that year uh, ended his life um, mm-hmm. after being sent to South Korea and, and, and struggling with um, drug addictions and other issues. And so, you know, Philip Clay really, I think, captured the imagination of American public about this very... Um, uh, not well understood community of mm-hmm. about thirty two thousand adoptees uh, without citizenship, uh, of which there's about eighteen thousand who are Korean born. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about how you know you heard about this particular issue and um, you know what what it means to you that there is a community that's out there that, really, through no fault of their own, are in this legal limbo and without citizenship.
2: When I heard about, about Philip and about, you know, so many other cases of adoptees in a lot of ways, very similar to my experience, um, who have been, you know, in some cases deported, in, in other cases are facing deeply expensive and traumatic legal battles and things like that, it's, it, it, it just, it strikes a chord, right? It, it, it hurts a lot. I think for me, the the thing that I focus on is I really want folks to I really want folks to understand how how important the compassion for 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 Philip and for for our adoptees. I want I want this to be sort of part of the broader immigration debate as well. You know, and I, I think folks are realizing that that. But one thing that 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 kills me is how do I put this? I, I, when I think about the Korean-adopted community, it's it's such a, we're such a wonderful and weird and varied and diverse community because I think already, I think just Korean-Americans in general, I think we're a, uh, we're very large, don't get me wrong, but like in the context of, you know, 300 million people in America, we are a small percentage, right? And so, in some ways, I feel like we, we feel like a small community. You know, we, we come from a smaller country, right? Like, it's like, in a lot of ways, there's, there's a, we have that kind of mentality. But Korean-American Korean adoptees is an even tinier subgroup, right? I think it's, I want to say, about like 100, 150,000 people total. And something that I've been thinking about a lot recently as I think about Philip Clay, as I think about others, is that it's, it's also really time-specific. And that's really interesting to me, too, where, I, in a lot of ways, I feel like, this sounds like I'm diminishing and I don't mean to, but Korean, I feel like Korean American adoptees are going to kind of become like record players or like, you know, a Discman or something where there will be a tie, like, you know, in 2015, I think there were like a few hundred Korean adoptees max, right? To all across the world, not even just American Korean adoptees. And so I think about this idea that the idea of being a Korean adoptee is kind of a going extinct, right? That this idea of, oh, I'm Korean adopted is a very like 80s, 90s kind of concept. Uh, so yeah, I guess we're like bell bottoms or something, right? Like we're, we're about to go back out. But I think about it because when I think about Philip, when I think about the adoptee advocacy, when I think about the justice stuff that we talked about before, but I think this definitely applies here, I think about you know, how can we as an adoptee community advocate for ourselves, but also think about ourselves in this broader you know, immigration context in this broader adoption context, right? Because there, to me, is a really big debate about adoption, foster care in this country too that I think Korean adoptees are a part of in some way too, right? And I don't think that we should force ourselves into any discussions. There's a lot of different ways in which obviously I think like a you know American family adopting a, a child born in America is going to be a different experience. And I don't pretend to, to have my experience being born in Seoul has, has a very, very different story. But, I'd like us to participate in those as well. And so don't get me wrong. I, I, I very much believe that we need to we need to make sure we protect adoptees as well. But part of the reason you hear me talking so much about broad strokes is that i I worry a little bit that sometimes we think about Philip and other folks like me because, we have white last names because we we speak differently, because there's a little bit more proximity to whiteness. And so one thing that I that does concern me is something that I hear not overtly, but it's the tone of a lot of these articles, is well, how could they deport, you know, John Brock? Or John John's almost white, right? And so there's this sort of incredulity that to me feels unintentionally, but still pretty racial or racist, right? And and I'd rather it be look, this happens to John, it happens to Philip, it happens to a lot of folks. And we need to talk about this. And we need to talk about what's happening to them and talk about what's happening to, frankly, millions of folks. And why is this happening? And is it right? And what can we do about it?
1: Mm. I I think that's really interesting. And I, I will uh, just say that, you know, in Washington, uh, in the last three and a half years that I've been with CKA, I've had a chance to meet with groups like National Korean American Service and Education Consortium, or NACASEC, as well as the Adoptee Rights Campaign, among others, who have you know highlighted this very unusual situation that is affecting a disproportionate number of Korean adoptees in particular, and it's been really heartbreaking uh, to see that you know this is a legal loophole that you know there is bipartisan support to close, but unfortunately this seems to be caught in. Uh, the broader immigration debate, which, as we all know, uh, is politically very tricky to navigate, and so it's hard for me to know uh, how you know this, um, you know how bills and lawmakers and folks who care about this issue can work together, you know, in a bipartisan way to, uh, you know, perhaps retroactively grant citizenship to uh, the 32,000 people um, that we're talking about. Um, so, you know, when when you think about this issue, John, and, you know, obviously you're not in D.C., but you hear about what's happening, I think, you know, from a distance. I mean, do you feel like there there's more work that we should do to elevate the stories of Korean adoptees? You know, what, what role can, you know, CKA play uh, on this issue?
2: I definitely think that the... That the stories of adoptees need to be raised up. I completely agree. Uh, and I don't just say that as a Korean adoptee, but I think that there are are so many stories of adoptees that aren't told and that we we just make so many assumptions about adoption. Uh, and I think even that's even broader than just Korean adoptees. I think that's just true about adoption in general. You know, we we talk a lot about Tricky vocabulary like oh you're not my real dad and like I see that in TV all the time right uh, and adoption usually is like a storyline right it's usually sort of like oh I I don't know who my parents are like I have to go search for them and I don't mean to make fun of that that's like something that I've thought about about like thinking about searching for my birth parents and things like that but it's usually handled very poorly in in not just in media but also in journalism and in a lot of the other kinds of ways that we think about and, and learn about things. And so I definitely think that, that CKA has a role to play in, in raising up these issues. I, I also think that we just, to me, this issue of of belonging and identity is critical too. And I think that's beyond just adoptees, but sort of, we think about Philip, who he doesn't know Korea. So the idea of, de- of deporting him to Korea was not only wrong and, and, and seemingly just so silly in a lot of ways, it's also just, how does this even make sense, right? Philip doesn't speak the language, right? He doesn't know any of the cultural touchstones whatsoever. And so, I have to be honest, I, I think that the, the ways that belonging is a lot less dire than some, some of the issues that Philip faced, let's, let's be real here. But I do think a lot about how Korean adoptees and a lot of transracial adoptees, uh, meaning you know, folks who have parents who are a different race than they are, like in my case, my parents are white uh, and I'm Korean American. A lot of times I think that there is a sense of we don't belong anywhere. Right. And I've actually heard this from a lot of biracial and multiracial friends as well. This sort of notion of uh, I think other scholars have called this sort of the borderlands, right? This idea of, oh, and this is true for everyone, right? We all kind of exist at like, who are we? Well, we're kind of a bunch of different things and we're never quite fully comfortable in one place. And I, I, I lift it up just because I think that for me as a Korean adoptee, I, I really feel that a lot. I feel... Uh, I, I, I love Korean spaces, but I also feel very out of place in a lot of them, right? I, I don't speak Korean, but even beyond that, I I don't have touchstones. Like my, my parents don't really know the culture and they're not Korean at all, right? And so that I, if, if folks talk about sort of traditions or things that a lot of Koreans tend to share, not only is there's not a low chance that I share that experience, it's a 0% chance that I share that experience, right? Uh, but but even more broadly, it's things like I I think sometimes about how I interface with uh, with other adoptees and you know other non-Asian adoptees, and so there's just a lot of areas of of intersection, but also of of exclusion. And so I, I think it's really important for CKA, as we think about how do we maintain a close knit community, but also how do we welcome? You know, we I think it's important to think about those two different priorities too, um, with adoption.
1: Right, right. I think, you know, there's certainly a lot more that organizations like CKA can do to inform and educate our ourselves and then the, you know, the the American public um, about our unique experiences and um, you know, though we have a few uh, adoptees um, in the membership including yourself, of course, um, it doesn't really represent I think the full spectrum of diversity that's, you know, uh, inherent in in our community and I think uh, CK's strength will be a very diverse membership and mm-hmm. so it's something that uh, we're going to be continuing to strive. Do you have any thoughts or advice on folks who might be interested in following your footsteps? You could maybe talk about your political work or in in the creative space, entertainment, what sort of advice do you have for maybe some of our young listeners?
2: Sure, I, I, I love giving out advice. Uh, I'm not always sure it's good advice but I love giving out advice. I, I think for me the, the biggest thing that I tell folks which which will sound maybe a little bit surprising, I think a lot of times, is I actually think in a lot of my industries that I've worked in from entertainment to politics, and this is kind of a sidebar, but I actually think entertainment and politics have been way more similar than different, which is very interesting to me. But I think there's a kind of scary amount of similarity between those two industries to me. They're both very opaque and hard to understand and uh, hard to get into. But then once you're in there, it's kind of a very small town kind of community feel. Anyway, the, the advice that I give is not I think people expect to hear like, oh, you got to use this website to find people or something sort of more either technical or more job or sort of work oriented. But I think honestly, for me, the, the the biggest hurdles that I have found to all of my work stuff have been about mental health, actually. And you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I don't deal with a, a, a lot of the mental health issues many folks deal with, so I, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I think that for me, what I, what I mean by that is that I deal with things like uh, like anxiety and like a lot of self-doubt and self-worth. Uh, we talked about adoption and adoption as trauma. And so for me, I know that at all the times where I've sort of struggled the most with work, I think it's tempting to say like, oh, I, I needed the right connection or something like that. And don't get me wrong, those are invaluable and, and, you know, I am here and I'm easy to find, but also, you know, CKA and other groups are there to establish those connections. But to me, the the thing that held me back most of the time was, you know, I, I, I still do this sometimes, you know, something as simple as I walk into a networking event and I know that I'm smart and capable even if I'm, you know, young and let's say 10 years ago I was still meeting new people. But there's that voice in my head saying, none of these people want to talk to you, John. Or there's a voice in your head saying, you're in a meeting, if you speak up, they're going to hate every word you say, right? And it's sort of this idea that we're often our own most uncharitable voice and and it might not be us right it could be a voice of a stern family member or it could be a voice of maybe we hear society saying like oh you need to look different you need to be different right uh and i I know it sounds easy for me to say sort of like believe in yourself but that's it's not even as simple as that right but sort of what i would say is be open and honest with yourself about sort of the struggles that we're having you know i I know that for some of us it's kind of the, the voices we talked about for some of us it could be like you know i don't feel Great waking up every morning and going into this job. How do I find it in me to sort of keep going all these kinds of things? To me the biggest thing is be honest with yourself about that sort of self-awareness that we don't talk about You know, how are you? I'm a super hippy-dippy guy. I love crunchy granola stuff But I'm you know, how are you actually feeling like are you are you what are you happy, right? I think we don't ask ourselves are we happy enough, right? And if we say yes or no, I don't think we interrogate that enough too. like, okay, we don't like our job Let's unpack that a little bit, like, what about it don't we like? Is it that our boss is great, but the work isn't what we want to focus on? Like, what's really going on here? Because what, and I know I need to follow this my own advice sometimes, too, but I think we're often just scared of our own agency, but we often ignore it, too. We, we have so much power, and yes, there is so much set against us, but I think that if we can find a way to at least say, hey, I'm dealing with these issues and then can seek help right either that's like maybe it's a therapist maybe it's a friend maybe it's a good support network a mentor a boss to me that's often been been like the key is saying like oh not like oh i needed that like listserv connection but it's like oh i need to get the bravery to say hey boss who always says that they love me d- do you mind being a reference and then 100% of the time, they say, oh, of course, Jessica, John, I, I I love you. I would I would take a bullet for you. I've been waiting for you to ask me. And so to me, it's that self-awareness of what's in my way, what is in my head, what's either dragging me down or on, let's be positive, or what's boosting me, right? What what gives me fuel? And like pay attention to that, like in the same way that we pay attention to our bodies about like, oh, I'm too stuffed or like whatever. And so to me, that's, that's the biggest advice is like mm-hmm. lean on CKA, lean on me and others for that connection sort of work, work, work stuff. But to me, the biggest hurdles have usually been personal, mental, and and often hard because they take vulnerability. You know, we don't like talking about like, oh, I Jessica, I don't know if I know how to do this. Can you tell, like, that feels wrong to say, I don't know, or not even, I'm not an expert, like, but maybe I'm, is this totally wrong? Like, can you look at this? But that vulnerability and with certain people, at least, right, to me has been the key to to finding friendship love and then respect and moving forward in my career not just in my personal life Mm. so that's that's what I would say
1: that's very helpful (laughs) I think um, yeah mental health is something we don't talk about Mm -hmm. no I think um, you know it's it's something that we hide Mm -hmm. from public and yet you know having really strong support network and like mm-hmm. you said strong self-esteem and self-awareness i mean that those are so important mm-hmm. uh, for long-term you know sustainability right so uh, i think you know your candor and your reflections are something we really need to you know insert more yeah and when we talk about successful people and things they do well guess what they all make mistakes they exactly. all are exactly. humans <laughs> right and you right. know this is not something we, you know where you know we want to put people on a pedestal and say wow isn't it great that you know so and so is x y and z and ceo at age 28 i mean it's about you know yes celebrating you know um your contributions and your Korean Americanness, and mm-hmm. and of course all of that is important, and that's why we do this podcast. But also important is just being real, and mm-hmm. you know just talking about what were those true motivating factors and values that kept you going, even right. when things didn't work. So really appreciate uh, your your perspectives on that. Um, I guess the final question that I have is, you know, when you when you think about The future, you know, what kind of a world do you envision for Korean Americans?
2: Jessica, I love that question. One, the world that I envision for Korean Americans. This is kind of funny. So I'm like a really, this surprised a lot of people. But I actually am am a really cynical person. Like I am, I. Having worked in a lot of different industries and and all that kind of stuff, I end up sort of coming off a little jaded sometimes. But my answer to this question actually is: I think the future of Korean America is bright. I'm I'm desperately excited for the future of Korean America because even my cynical, jaded self, even at my worst, I think, oh gosh, like I think about uh, toxic workplaces or, or you know folks who don't show up or you know a lot of things that really you know get in my crawl or whatever. I, I think about folks like like Peter, folks like our public service interns, folks like. Pretty much universally, every time I meet uh, Korean American, but also you know Asian American people of color, young folk activists, they completely, I mean, one blow me away in terms of their ability, their passion, their dedication, the amount of accomplishment they've already done, but also just they 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 blow away from me any sense of doubt I have. Cause, cause sometimes I worry, I say like, oh my gosh, I, I see these trends. I'm worried about like, oh my gosh, are is the, is the next generation going to do, make the same mistakes that we did, right? Are you know, we, I think we've done some great stuff, but like, oh man, I feel like we've dropped the ball on some big things. But overwhelmingly what I, I keep on seeing every time is every time I get to work with, train, teach, mentor young folks, they always are like smarter than me, more accomplished than me and like get it when at their age I was like barely learning to talk and they're like oh let me talk to you about this like you know how I went to this small town and like saved it because like I just decided to and I was okay okay great and you know and their facility with like speaking about issues that are so complicated and and I'll be honest I only was able to like articulate in my like mid-30s and they're you know like 19 and they're just like oh I know how to speak about race and gender in like a really complex way and I'm like oh I just learned how to sort of really educate myself and sort of speak to this in a way that wasn't uh, dehumanizing and wasn't wasn't painful for folks uh, but these folks just in their DNA they 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 approach this with work with kindness with love and with with like joy and hope which to me is always like where do you get the joy and hope like, i got like, I I see I see climate change and i see you know this guy in the white house and i'm like where do you, where is your source of hope but but these these young folks and uh, it, it, i mean they're not you know that much younger than me i guess but But they just they they inspire me. And that's that's so easy to say, but like I really mean it. Every single time I think like, I don't know, maybe not. I go to like a college event or something and I'm just how do how do these how do these folks do it? Like they're they're just they're really incredible and 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 I don't say that lightly. So I really do think the future of Korean American is bright. I think uh, what I love is the young Korean American activists, not just in politics, but you know, the leaders in, in every industry, they're they're doing great things and they're doing them in really thoughtful ways. you know, I, I think they will lead this next generation uh, and they're gonna do so in a way that will really make us proud, uh, I have no doubt.
1: Well, thank you. This was John Brower, a consultant and speaker at Brower Strategies and a CKA member since 2018. My name is Jessica Lee, and this is Korean American Perspectives. Thanks so much for joining us today, John.
2: Thank you, Jessica, what a wonderful conversation.
0: Thank you, Jessica, for that great interview. You've covered a lot of landscape in this particular interview. I think everything from Korean American uh, adoptee issues all the way to mentoring our one of our PSI uh, interns, uh, Peter Huang, who was a PSI intern at 2016. I think it's just a wonderful example of how CKA leaders are helping our leaders for the next generation, and certainly Peter will be one of them. And, and I really do appreciate John and what he's doing uh, with Peter right now.
1: Yes, this was a, I think, a great example of how you know, multi generational impact CKA can have and uh, how members are helping the next generation of of leaders come together and and to tackle the challenges before us. So uh, really excited to feature this conversation with John Brower. We look forward to your tuning in to our next episode and uh, really appreciate your support. You can find our podcast online on our website at www.councilka.org, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for tuning in and uh, look forward to our next conversation together.
0: Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Korean
1: American Perspectives podcast. Head over to CouncilKA.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's
2: CouncilKA.org.